pastor elders who you hear from most of the time, Tim and Christian, are both away actually serving other bodies this morning. Um, Tim, our primary pre- uh, preaching pastor, is preaching at Risen Life uh, Church's 10-year anniversary. For uh, those of you who don't know, um, this was actually before my time, um, Risen Life is a church plant out of Trinity. And so we're really, we want to celebrate with them the fact that they have lasted 10 years. Um, I think we underestimate and undervalue just the, the amount of work that goes into a church plant to really establish gospel-centered churches in our communities. Um, and Christian is current, and by the way, this shirt is to try to channel some of his aura, um, but the shoes are for Tim. Um, Christian is currently in Colombia, uh, not the city, the country, um, and has been teaching at a pastor's conference and is now preaching at two different churches in the country today. So I just want to take a moment and um, pray uh, for both Christian and uh, Tim, and then we're going to dive into First and Second Samuel, which we've been in for a few months, and today we're actually going to cover chapters 14 and 15 which is 87 verses, and so I'm not going to just stand here and read it all to you because that would probably take the whole time, Um, but we're going to, I'm going to be reading it throughout as I preach, and so, um, but whenever we study the Word of Lord, we need His Spirit to illuminate our hearts and our minds, so if you would, please bow your heads with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being a God who has given us your Word. Thank you for being a God who wants to communicate to us, who wants to know us, and who wants us to know you. As Augustine said, Lord, we are lost. We find our rest in you. And Father, as we hear the preaching of your word this morning, I pray that we would find rest in you. That for those who are restless this morning, those who are weary, God, they would be encouraged. For those who are living in sin, Lord, they would be pricked at the heart, as it says in Acts, and they would turn in repentance, Lord, and they would find genuine rest and mercy at the throne of Jesus, Lord. Be with us. Be with Tim as he preaches at Risen Life, and be with Christian as he preaches in Columbia. Father, may all this be for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 16th century lived a man many of you are likely familiar with. We've spoken of him a lot, but his name was Martin Luther. Luther famously nailed the 95 Thesis to the church door that sparked the flame that would become the Protestant Reformation. But 10 years before this event, Luther was actually well on his way to become a lawyer in Germany. And, in 15, and he was not interested at all in the things of God. In 1507, he was caught in a terrible storm in Stottenheim. And Luther at that moment vowed, praying to St. Anne, that he would become a monk if she would save him. The Lord saved Luther that day, um, and he became an Augustinian monk, but later he actually found the Lord. As he was in the Catholic Church, he found many false doctrines that were being abused and dishonoring to the Lord and oppressing the people. After sparking that reformation, he began to be persecuted by the Catholic Church and society. Luther's house was burned down, he was chased, and when he was finally captured and taken to trial, he actually also suffered several physical ailments. What the leaders didn't expect was that as they pressured him, or what they were hoping was that he would recant 
from his charges against the Catholic Church that salvation comes from faith alone and there's scripture alone and that the Pope is not infallible. But what they didn't expect was what he would say while on trial in Wittenberg. Unless I am convinced by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me. You see, Martin Luther, although he's facing immense cultural pressure to recant, would not because he served a kingdom that was not of this world. He did not serve the Pope. He did not serve society. He served the Lord and the Lord alone. For Martin Luther, it was one thing to believe, but then his faith proved that it had teeth because he had repented of his former life and he walked in that repentance. See, if we are to truly experience salvation, there will always be two sides to the coin, faith and repentance. They cannot and they will not be separated. They always go together. And to remove one is to remove salvation altogether. True access to the kingdom of God requires both faith and repentance. In this section of Samuel, after piling pressure, we are going to see the kingdom that Saul is living for. In many ways, 1 Samuel 14 through 15 serve as the end of a section, or you could maybe say it's like the, the season finale of season one, Samuel, the rise of a kingdom. Israel wanted a king, and they got what they wanted. But that king is building his own kingdom and not the kingdom of God. See, this king, rather than stewarding God's people and leading them in the Lord's kingdom, pursued his own. We're going to see how this conflict with the Philistines and then Saul being caught in sin caused Saul to be exposed of his true and current condition, which is tragic. So in 1 Samuel 14, we're going to see that Saul lacks genuine faith. And if you read through 1 Samuel without chapters, the, hi- the highlight of Jonathan here defeating the Philistines sits right in between two of Saul's blunders and highlights other mistakes Saul is making. And there's three big contrasts in chapter 14. The first is that Saul is relying, or Saul is paralyzed by fear, where Jonathan is a man of action. Saul is relying on his own wisdom, where Jonathan is seeking the Lord and relying on the Lord. And third, Saul wants to build his own kingdom, as I've mentioned, and Jonathan is concerned about the Lord's victory. So first, we see that Saul is fearful, but Jonathan takes bold action. See, Jonathan is completely aware that it is not up to him to defeat the Philistines, but it is in the hands of the Lord. See, the battle belongs to the Lord. Jonathan knows that the Israelites are God's chosen people, they've been given the promised land, and that the Lord will give them victory. See, we start, see in 14 verse 6 that Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, they're, they're all in hiding in holes, by the way, like real quick, like that's what's happening right now. The Israelites are literally hiding in holes. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go to the garrison of these uncircumcised and may be that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving many or by few. In verse 9, Jonathan comes up with this amazing plan to come out of hiding and then give his, away, his position away to the Philistines. 
Amazing was sarcastic there. Sorry, it just kind of flowed together. It sounds crazy. He's just going to say, hey, Philistines, here we are. And he says, if the, Lord, if the Philistines say, hey, come to us, he says, we're going to go. That's the Lord giving victory to us, right? Sure enough, the Philistines say, come to us and we will show you a thing. It's like, hey, come on up here. Let me knock you out there. To which Jonathan, again, showing his confidence in the Lord, he says, come after me for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And Jonathan and his armor bearer go and defeat 20 Philistines. Two men defeat 20 Philistines. Because Jonathan knows the Lord's will is their victory, he acts. He knows that the Lord has given them victory, so he acts. The Lord's will is that the Israelites would win. The Lord's will for your life is what? See, 1 Thessalonians 4.3 actually gives us this answer. We don't have to spend a ton of time trying to figure this out. It's very clear. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says that God's will for our life is that we are holy. See, as God's people, we should be pursuing holiness with confidence. We should not be beaten up by the sins of this world, by the temptation of the world, because God's plan for our life is not that we would be handed into temptation and into sin, but instead that we walk in holiness. Not by our own wisdom and not by our own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. See, while all this is going on, Saul, again, hiding in a hole, asks the priest to inquire to the Lord. And while the priest is seeking the Lord, in verse 19, it says that the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Like, let's understand what's happening here. Saul says, let's, let's pray and ask God what's happening. Things get crazy. And Saul says, stop praying. Great king right there, guys. See, rather than continuing to seek what the Lord has to say, he goes with what he relies on in his own wisdom. He sees an opportunity for victory and thinks he's got this now. He can obtain glory. The point here, like Jonathan, rather, before attacking the Philistines, he comes up with this Gideon-like plan, right? It's, it seems odd to us today, but what he's trying to say is, I trust that the Lord will show us whether or not we will have victory. I will let the Lord guide my actions. I'm not saying we should necessarily pray about clear scriptural commands, right? We're not saying we should pray like, God, should I lie here? Should I tell the truth? Should I obey my parents? Should I be work all things unto the Lord? No, no, no. But for areas where like we don't have clear guidelines in scripture, for areas where we need wisdom, we should not be relying on our own wisdom, but we should be submitting to the counsel of the Lord. Paul, when speaking about the armor of God in Ephesians 6, verse 17, he says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And in verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Have you ever started a project or been dealing with a work issue or a family issue and maybe sought the Lord initially and you start going through the process and you feel like you've got it under control and then you just leave the counsel of the Lord behind? We are an independent people who believe by our actions and our wisdom we can live lives without the counsel of the Lord. And I'm not speaking about America as a whole right now. I'm speaking about us, church. When we do this, 
we are acting in the same level of ignorance and arrogance of Saul. When we look to life coaches, counselors, friends, books, podcasts, etc., first, when we look there first to be a better friend, spouse, worker, parent, for our purpose or for our career, we set aside the reality that our God is a God who wants to give counsel and a God who knows all things, a God who created you, created me, created the scenario that we're living in right now. And when we seek him, we will find him. But if we do not seek him, we will see that he will withdraw himself. Moving ahead to verse 14, 36, another scene here. Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and despoil them until the morning light. Let us not leave one of them, they said. They said, do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, let us draw near to God. So Saul inquired to God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer on that day. Two things real quick. One, the priest has to say, let us inquire of the Lord. Saul is not leading his people in the prayer. Secondly, this isn't a coincidence that God just chooses not to answer him here. God is now withdrawing himself, and we'll see in chapter 15 more clearly, he is withdrawing himself from Saul because Saul has chosen not to be about the things of God. Christian, if we choose to not be about the things of God, we will feel dry. We will feel that God is far. Are you living your life without the Lord's counsel and guidance? He does not grow tired of you coming to him and praying and seeking his counsel. He is not a parent like we are a parent where we, f- we fail our children and grow impatient. He is a patient, loving father. Next, and last for this section, we see that Saul is concerned about building his own kingdom. Jonathan is concerned about building the Lord's. See, we already saw earlier that when Jonathan is speaking about defeating the Lord's, uh, defeating the enemies, he uses language like "nothing can hinder the Lord," or "the Lord's w- the Lord will hand them in over to us." The Lord will give us victory. Jonathan's confidence and care for defeating the Philistines is not about his own legacy, but about the Lord's. See, and I think this is interesting regarding an interesting commentary or context on the character of Jonathan, right? When we think of Jonathan, oftentimes we think about how Jonathan loved David and Jonathan did a lot to protect David. And we'll see that later on in 1 Samuel. And we we know that he does. But Jonathan doesn't just love David because he loves David. It's not just because he's his boy, right? Jonathan is a man concerned about the kingdom of God. And so the primary motivation for Jonathan to care for David is because Jonathan knows that Saul is not the Lord's anointed, but rather, as we'll see next week in chapter 16, David is the Lord's anointed. David is the king who's going to restore Israel, right? And so Jonathan is concerned about him because he is God's plan. Saul, rather than being concerned about the Lord's victory, gives this bizarre curse in verse 24. Look with me in verse, chapter 14, verse 24. He says, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Saul wants glory. Saul wants praise. Saul is a king wanting to leave a legacy of himself. 
This chapter further summarizes and explains the sentiment in verse 52. He says, or it says, excuse me, there was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, which is great. Saul's like trying to defeat the enemies, which is what he's commanded to do. Further, final, uh, prepare the borders for Israel. However, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. At first glance, it reminds us that Saul fought hard, but it also shows us whose army Saul is building. He pulled men into his service, which is exactly, exactly what Samuel warned the people that a king would do. See, Saul, in one sense, is an excellent example for us to be like, don't be like Saul. Don't be Saul. But even greater, it's an example of that God does what he says he will do. Or what God says will happen, happens. Whose victory are you looking for? Whose victory are you pursuing with your work? with your kids, with your hobbies, or your marriage? Or maybe said, who's glory? Do you want to be the greatest husband or wife? The greatest employee for the students in the room? Do you want to be the greatest student? We see it all the time in sports, right? Like someone wins a big game. First, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I wouldn't be anywhere if it wasn't for him. Man, I was awesome that night. And that's nice. Maybe they are genuine. We're not really here to decide that. But knowing myself, I can very easily work heartily unto the Lord for that paycheck, for that vacation, so that I'm a great husband who provides for his family. I want to encourage us to ask the Lord to search our hearts and ask, where am I trying to build my own kingdom? Where am I making worldly progress for my own game? gain? It could be financial, social, emotional, re- even religious. Why do we not seek the Lord's kingdom? Is it because we're self-centered? Probably, yes. But it's also, we probably don't actually believe that the kingdom of God is all that he says it is. We may believe in God but we may make him out to be a bit of a grandpa, right? The kingdom of God, however, has been initiated. And actually, as we just sang, he's coming back again, y'all. And he's not coming back peaceably. He's coming back on a stallion with a sword in his hand to execute judgment. And for those who are not bending a knee to the kingdom of God, it will be a day of dread. But for the believer, it will be a day of rejoicing. So the second side of the coin we see that Saul lacks genuine repentance. In this next portion of Scripture, we're going to see Saul sin again and then be confronted with a sin. And how he responds is critical. And it's, they, it's all examples of what I believe we can do in our, our lives when we sin. He's going to straight up lie about it. He's going to try to justify his sin, his actions, And then he's going to try to shift the blame. 
But before we get into Saul's false repentance, let's, actually, let's read what happens here. And we're going to touch on it briefly, but we cannot do a full dissertation on this topic. So, 1 Samuel 15, 1-4, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did in opposing the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. I want to make sure you heard that right. Saul has been told by God to kill everyone and everything belonging to the country of Amalek. This is hard for us to grasp in our world today. How could a good, gracious God demand that everyone, even innocent infants and animals, be killed? Heath Thomas gives us some good handles to help us understand what is happening with this, what could be called a holy war. See, Old Testament holy wars can only be rightly understood within a story that reveals a God who is committed to eradicating sin and renewing his creation. This point seems so simple and yet remains so profound. Holy wars, whatever they may be, are not the only part of the story or even the most important part of the story. If we rip the troubling accounts of the Old Testament out of their broader creation, new creation context, then we may well distort their contents. See, in other words, to isolate the ins- this instance without understanding how sin has completely corrupted and is killing a society and killing others around them, and that our God is a good God who makes all things new, you don't really understand what is happening with the purpose in these wars. You see, we have a minuscule view on sin and a minuscule view on God's holiness. See, divine, and a couple other things to note here. One, divine warfare is completely limited and non-repeatable. We are not pursuing divine warfare today, right? Secondly, divine warfare is commanded by a merciful God. We know that God is merciful in other parts of Scripture. Third, divine warfare is not genocide or ethnic cleansing, but it's the elimination of false worship. Again, sin has entered into this world and is God's mission and desire for this world to eradicate sin. Fourth, and we see this in the command itself, that justice is meted out communally in divine warfare. So, Saul is instructed to wipe out the Amalekites, and he does not do it. And God responds to him. So Saul is rejected as king in verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. And then verse 11, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commandments. Samuel is angry, and he cried out to the Lord all night. When Samuel confronts Saul, he lies and doesn't come clean. Samuel actually has to catch him in the act, or catch him to have him fess up. And Saul then tries to justify what he's done. In verse 13, And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be to you, be, be to you, the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? How does Samuel respond? He seizes the moment to justify his actions. Oh, they, they were, those were holy sacrifices for the Lord, right? Obviously but he's not done. When pressed again, he replies, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. What? I'm not, I haven't sinned. I've obeyed. I've gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. And I've brought Agag, the king of Amal- Amalek, 
and I have spoiled, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gagal. It's almost like Samuel should tell Saul, you keep using that word obey. I do not think it means what you think it means. <laughs> See, Samuel, hearing all this, is just goes off in verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. It's almost like Saul thinks he can somehow impress the Lord with his own conquest. If God gave me this command, but you know what? I can actually make it better, God. Instead of doing what you told me to do, let me almost do what you said and make it better. It's funny how we think we can impress with what, God, what we do for God, isn't it? Maybe it's not funny, but rather sad. I think we do it from a couple different perspectives. I think on one sense, we're very sincere. We think, unfortunately, we're like a child in a family who washes the dishes, mops the floor, cuts the grass, takes care of the household, and then looks to his parents and say, look what I did. Am I still your son? And the parent's like, you were always my son. Right? You were always my child. All that you're doing does not make you my child. You do what you're doing because you are my child. And if that's who you are this morning, if you feel this need and burden to earn favor with the Lord so that he will keep you, friend, you are believing a lie. The Lord keeps you by none other than the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second reason we do this, we subconsciously believe we can earn extra favor in the Lord. Ask yourself if you're a karma Christian, do you believe that if you do good things for God, that he will bless you in a transactional manner? Christian, this is a false doctrine that we've touched on a lot. And if you fall here, I'd love to speak with you more about it later. But this is called the prosperity gospel. And it's not how the Lord works. Where in your life are you attempting to have everything together to avoid the reality of your brokenness? Psalm 51, 16 through 17 contrasts what Saul's doing with what David did. It tells us, for you do not delight in sacrifices, or I would bring it. You do not take, you take no pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. See, God, when we repent of our sin, he breaks our hearts and humbles us as we repent. So after Saul has tried to justify himself, he continues to shift the blame to his people. And at first glance, it sounds like Saul is repenting. He says he sinned, but he doesn't actually own his sin. It's like when one of our kids maybe does something wrong. Maybe they pop the other one on the head or something and they realize they're about to lose screen time or sit in time out or whatever it is. And like, sorry, can I not sit in time out? Like real quick, avoid the punishment. 
And this is, this is the same thing he does in chapter 13. Saul performs the sacrifice, which is improper, but then he blames Samuel for not being there on time. See, shifting the blame has been happening since the beginning, right? What happens in the garden? God calls on man, and he says, this woman you gave me. And then God calls on the woman, and she says, it's the serpent lied to me. We can be tempted to do this in our own life, can we not? How about in our marriage? Well, if my wife wasn't so fill in the blank, maybe I would love her better. If my husband did, took care of the house better, I'd respect him. Or in our friendship and in our school. If, if she wasn't such a bad teacher, I wouldn't have to cheat. If he wasn't such a bad boss, I wouldn't be gossiping about him. On and on we can go. We sin and we come up with a reason why we are so forced to sin. Are you broken over your sin or are you finding someone or something else to blame? Next and finally, we see that Saul cares more about his image. He's a very vain individual. Saul cares, excuse me, Saul makes a fake confession and we know it's fake because he shares his motive at the end. He says, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. He should have stopped there. Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. See, Saul is more concerned with Samuel returning with him to the people of Israel to essentially put on a good face. He needs the support of the prophet Samuel in order to continue ruling his kingdom here. It's almost like, um, whoops, sorry. Saul shows his arrogance. He wants the people to think highly of him, and he's playing the what if people find out card. And this happens far too often, unfortunately, far too often, not only in our own spiritual lives when it comes to sin, our own personal lives when it comes to sin. We, we think if, if so-and-so knew about my struggle, if so-and-so knew how I sinned, they would respect me less. But what we do when we, when we try to hide our sin is, one, we don't seek healing like Scripture tells us to. And second of all, we try to keep the glory for ourselves instead of showing how great God's glory is and how rich and unending His forgiveness is. Right? When Peter asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive another? What does the Lord say? Seventy times seven. Thomas Watson actually quotes that in his book, saying, would the Lord not ask us to do something that he will not do himself? James 5.16 says, to confess your sins to one another. Exposing our sin heals us. It brings to light. It brings the sin to light so that it may be defeated. 1 Corinthians 7.10 reminds us that for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Here Saul moves from like not having any grief whatsoever to having a worldly grief because he realizes his kingdom is falling apart by his own actions, his own choices. Whereas Saul had worldly grief, David had godly grief. After David was confronted by Nathan concerning his adultery and conspiracy to murder, David simply says, 
I have sinned against the Lord. And he shows his contrition in Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What kind of grief does your sin bring you? Does your sin make you feel bad for yourself? Or does it just make you feel dirty? Or does your sin break your heart to know that you have sinned against a holy and perfect and loving God? A God who is patient and slow to anger and is waiting perfectly for you to repent. At the end of the Gospels, we see another comparison that I want to highlight. Two men betrayed Jesus. Judas and Peter. Most of us know the story. But Judas was one of Jesus' disciples. And he betrayed Jesus to the religious leaders of the time for 30 pieces of silver. See, Peter also, one of Jesus' disciples, told Jesus that no matter what happened, he would be by his side. He would stand up for him. And what does Peter do? He's confronted by a servant girl outside of Jesus' trial. And he says, I do not know the man. He says it two more times, just as Jesus promised. See, in both of these situations, the men are driven to grief, agony. They feel agony over their sin, right? Sincere agony. One man hangs himself. Judas hangs himself, has no godly grief, but instead grief of himself. Peter, on the other hand, has godly grief and runs to his Savior, the very one he denies. See, sincerity and feeling bad about what you have done is not repentance. Turning from your sin and turning to Jesus is repentance. There's no guarantee that we will never sin again, and that is not what I'm saying, just to be clear. It's very likely that you will, but you need to ask yourself, what is your attitude towards that sin, right? In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he speaks of gouging out your eye and cutting off your hand, right? We're not supposed to literally do that, but that is his attitude towards sin. That, is, that needs to be our attitude towards our sin. Is that it? Are you willing to have um, worldly loss and hurt in order to not sin, in order to repent? Or is it easier just to kind of like keep your sin as your vice, your little pet that you just kind of confess every so often so that you feel okay? Thomas Watson, again, um, and I really want to encourage you, if it's not a long read, but he wrote a book called The Doctrine of Repentance. He's a Puritan preacher from the 17th century. Wrote, Godly sorrow shows itself to be sincere because when a Christian knows he is out of the gunshot of hell and will never be damned, he still grieves for sinning against that free grace that has pardoned him. So despite the fact for the believer, we know there is no hell. We know there is no hell. And still, when we sin against our holy and perfect God, we are grieved. We have hurt our Savior. Lastly, and the worship team can join as we, as we close, Saul is contrasted with Jesus. See, 
Saul was a terrible king. We spent like three months establishing this. He was awful. Samuel told the people they would have a terrible king. He told them they didn't need a king. And why did he tell them this? Because they already had a king. So the Israelites will constantly, constantly during their kingdom be waiting and looking for a king who will meet the requirements. David will come and will still fail. The Lord's anointed will still fail on earth and they will look on and on. And we don't need to look at Saul with an attitude of don't be like Saul. Obviously, we don't want to be like Saul. That's pretty plain here. But this isn't a moral story of warning like the boy who cried wolf. But instead, it points to man's inability to achieve salvation. See, where Saul was afraid to attack his enemies, our King Jesus left his throne in perfect obedience to die and save his enemies, you and me. Rather than using the Father at convenient times like Saul did, Jesus was constantly separating himself from his disciples to seek the Father. But even further, he only did what the Father did in John 5, 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. Jesus, rather than seeking to build his own kingdom and do what he wants to do, submits perfectly to the will of the Father. Matthew 26, 39, and going a little bit farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Where our earthly kings and our earthly kingdoms have failed us, our heavenly king has succeeded and conquered. We have a leader who has defeated our enemy. We have a king who will show us true glory. We have a king who faithfully brings us to repentance and forgives us. If you're here this morning and you think, I believe in God, but I don't want to live for him, friend, I'm here to tell you that you don't believe in God. Maybe you're here and you're white-knuckling through life with morals, hoping God will accept you. Let me tell you, come to Jesus. He will give you rest from your striving. Are you here this morning questioning what king are you serving? If you're serving a kingdom of this world, you are lost, my friend. You are not secured in the blood of Christ. If you are here and the Lord has pricked your heart as it says in Acts and you feel convicted of your sin, please do not go on confessing. Come to Jesus. The Bible tells us that he is faithful and not only is he kind, he is actually just. It is the righteous thing for Jesus to do to forgive you of your sins because that punishment has already been paid for in the cross. If you do not repent, friend, there's an eternity of suffering and torment. But if you repent and come to Jesus, there is only joy. Let's sing.